This is episode 166 of the Stem Cell Podcast, Lung Regeneration with Dr. Darcy Wagner. Hey everybody, this is Daylon and Arun. Welcome back to the Stem Cell Podcast where we culture knowledge and stem cell research by talking to some of the brightest minds in the field. But before we get to that, do you love the Stem Cell Podcast and have thoughts on how we could make it even better? We want to hear from you. From now until May 12th, take our online feedback survey and tell us what you, our listeners, think of us. Participants will be entered in a draw to win a Stem Cell Podcast branded Goldie Wireless Speaker. Get it. To participate, visit our website at stemcellpodcast.com slash survey. Today, we have Dr. Darcy Wagner from Lund University on the podcast to talk about her research on lung tissue regeneration. We've also got the roundup of recent highlights in stem cell news coming right up. But first, the hashtag stem selfie contest is back. While you physically distance yourself from others, you can stay socially connected to your field online by sharing images of your research. Enter your best cell image at stemcell.com slash stemselfie, that's S-T-E-M-C-E-L-L-F-I-E 2020, by May 12th for a chance to win. All right, Arun, I'm kicking off the roundup this episode with the Vision Quest. This is a story from my boy, Sai Shavala. He probably doesn't even remember me, but I'm calling him my boy because he's now senior author on a nature paper. So we've been friends forever. Sai, this is a shout out. I hope you're listening. I always think of you. And now I'm going to think you even more because you're big up. Anyway, this is a great story because we don't talk about reprogramming, I think, enough anymore. I mean, maybe we talked it all out. This is kind of a programming story going, going back a little bit. I think retreading people have moved on. I think a bit from reprogramming, but this is, is, is really relevant. This is a story from Cy Chavala's lab at the University of North Texas Health Science Center. We're talking about the eye. You know, we had Thomas Ray on here who was talking about the eye, and he, he mentioned that, you know, we had this idea that we could make rods and cones. There were these big stories that came out. You know, it wasn't just the retinal pigmented epithelium that was going to make a clinical splash, but he was telling us how maybe that was a little bit too forward, uh, maybe over-promising, and the rods and cones still a big challenge. But, you know, a lot of the retinopathies, not just the ones related to RPE, but uh, others, you know, age-related MAC degeneration, macular degeneration, diabetic retinopathy, retinitis pigmentosa. Uh, these are all, you know, big, big problems, affect a lot of people. They're all uh, ultimately result in the loss of retinal neurons, and that leads to irreversible vision loss, right? So there's all these ideas for using embryonic stem cells, induced pluripotent stem cells as a strategy to make more of these uh, retinal cells uh, to, you know, restore vision. But the protocols there for der deriving the cells, they're cumbersome. They take a lot of time. They take a lot of resources. This is an old story. We've talked about this. Let's go with direct reprogramming. This is a strategy to cut out that middleman, not having to reprogram back to pluripotency, going right to the target cell. It's been done with neurons, astrocytes, cardiomyocytes, other cell types. But um, pharmacological conversion of photoreceptors using a method, nobody's done that yet, right? So here, Sai and his people, they uh, use a set of five small molecules uh, that can induce fibroblasts to become functional, uh, chemically induced photoreceptor-like photoreceptor -like cells, they call them, CYPCs, 
That's CIPCS, C-I-P-C-S. Um, and they do this without, here we go, without using any pluripotent cells, of course, or viral transcription factors. This was building on a, a established method for small molecules that were used to convert fibroblasts into neurons, and they added a couple other factors, namely this Wnt inhibitor, IWR1, and other sonic hedgehog, taurine, retinoic acid combo. So they made a little magic witch's brew there, um, and ultimately that was able to transform fibroblasts into rod photoreceptor-like cells. And transplantation of these cells into the subretinal space of rod de degeneration mice, so these are mice that are genetically affected, they have a knockout that uh, uh, results in rod degeneration. In these mice, uh, they were able to affect partial restoration of the pupil reflex and visual function. If you're wondering how they do that, they test how long these mice stay in the dark in hmm. aversion to light. So these blindish mice, they're just wandering around in the light. The mice that can see, they stay in the dark. That tells you something, hiding out. Um, and when they inject these cells, they go back to the dark. So that's, that's a, and it's a pretty pronounced effect. Check it out. So it's impressive work from Psy. Also, there's a little bit of mechanism in there. That's what made it a nature paper. They show that the compounds actually lead to translocation of axon two to the mitochondria, this mitolocalization, which results in production of reactive oxygen species, activation of NF-kappa B, and ultimately that results in upregulation of ASCL1, which has been shown as a powerful proneural transcription factor. So there you go, Sai. You did it. Congratulations. When I knew you was about 10 years ago, I knew you had it big. You had something coming. Took a while. This paper was in review for a year and a half. I want to think that I planted some of the seeds for this idea a decade ago, but that's probably not true. Sai, give us a call. We'll have you on the show, my man. Uh, flattery will take you a long way, Daylon. <laughs> uh, long way. Direct reprogramming. That's kind of the, the name of the game here. A couple of our papers are actually focused on direct reprogramming. You know, when I think of direct reprogramming, like you talked about it briefly, we've uh, been able to do this to some extent with neurons and cardiomyocytes. And in fact, one of the proteins that you mentioned, ASCL1, I believe is actually um, one of the transcription factors that's needed for Marius Wernig's uh, neural direct reprogramming paper a few years, I think it's been like 10 years now, where Marius Wernig actually came out with this paper showing you can directly reprogram fibroblasts into neurons. And I think uh, uh, they, there's like this BAM cocktail of factors, and I think ASCL1 is one of them. It's a cool process. Um, one thing actually the paper mentioned is that, you know, for all these direct reprogramming approaches, you have to worry about the efficiency. Mm. And a lot of these efficiencies have been pretty low, like even, um, you know, I'm sure Deepak Srivastava, who's our recent guest, um, uh, might mention that to you. You know, initially when they actually came out with their cardiac reprogramming paper, the efficiency of the cardiomyocyte production was pretty low. And the other thing is the small molecules, right? If you're throwing in small molecules, they naturally have off-target effects, right? That's They're somewhat dirty. And in fact, IWR1 just happens to be one of the small molecules that I use for, for cardiac differentiation. So I don't know if that tells you something. So I don't want to be a downer. Obviously, this is an amazing paper. It's got translational potential. It's in nature. You know, it's got, it's it's there. It's there. But you got you to gotta take it with a grain of salt. Why are you coming after my boy, Cyron? 
I'm not, man. He's your boy. I should, I should just back <laughs> off, man. I know you guys go way back. Okay. I'm just kidding. Sorry, he's not coming after you. He's right. I mean, there is that that factor. And I'll I'll dig a little deeper into your story to try and elaborate here. That was kind of the at the outset. I think the tool they used, which was this NRL GFP mouse, in which the promoter drives expression of GFP only in rod photoreceptors. That's like the 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 basic readout that they had, right? And when they put those four factors that were known to have this proneural effect in fibroblasts, they slightly changed uh, and lit up, you know, with the GFP. And that was kind of the impetus for them to say, you know, we got to come up with a recipe that works. And that's when they added those other factors. And that vastly improved the efficiency. But of course, like you say, I think that this is why a lot of people have moved on from direct reprogramming, because maybe it's not exactly as practical um, for whatever reason as, as you would hope. Uh, the one thing I would say also, though, about the eye here is I mean, it's not like cells in the eye with immunocompromised and it's isolated. But I think some of the some of the the those the facets of the how amenable the eye is to therapy also play for this. That you could deliver these small molecules. Maybe it could be insulated from, say, the heart. It's pretty far away, uh, mm. and you could always, you know, enucleate. And this is a disease where the vision is already lost, right? So all you can do is, is help or, or make a, a problem. You can't make it worse, right? And it's not cells, right? So you're not going to get these tumorigenic growths. You're not going to have that risk constellation. So mm -hmm. I think that it's, it's a, it's, it's, there's, there's a renewed interest maybe in the form of the eye here, maybe why this paper had such a big headline, a big uh, form as nature, I think maybe is because this is maybe a great fit. Direct reprogramming the eye maybe. Maybe a good, uh, maybe a good first try for this thing clinically. Renewed interest, a lot of work that needs to be done. Kudos to your BFF side. <laughs> so, move, <laughs> moving from the eye to a uh, another aspect of the the neural system, we're going to talk a little bit about spinal cord regeneration. Title of this paper, it's another Nature paper. Titled is uh, "Injured Adult Neurons Regress to an Embryonic Transcriptional Growth State." This is coming from the lab of Mark Tuzinski, and first author is Gunnar Poplowski from UC San Diego. So we know that repairing damage to the brain and the spinal cord is, you know, it's one of the holy grails of like not only stem cell biology, but medical science in general. And it's kind of a daunting task, right? You know, a lot of work has been done on this over the last decades. And it, until recently, it seemed pretty much impossible. So this study is really powerful because it kind of lays out a transcriptional roadmap for regeneration in the adult brain. So they're able to use a bunch of different interdisciplinary tools in neuroscience, genetics, virology, and a whole lot of computational power to actually identify how the entire set of genes in the adult brain can reset itself in order to regenerate somewhat. And it gives us an insight into how kind of at a transcriptional level, regeneration can actually happen in the brain. So what they're able to do is to use a mouse model to uh, find that after injury, mature neurons in the adult brain can actually revert back to an embryonic state. Wow, it's pretty mind-blowing, right? So only 20 years ago, we were thinking about the adult brain as kind of static, terminally differentiated. You, you know, you're stuck with what you have, right? But this is showing that, you know, over the last decade or so, a few years, this is this dogma has kind of changed, right? And some of this work was done by Rusty Gage, for example, who's at, down there also in San Diego at the Salk Institute. 
who found that new brain cells are actually continuously produced in like the hippocampus and the subventricular zone, for example. So these brain regions can actually be replenished throughout life. And the Tuszynski lab actually took this a step further. So they found that the brain's ability to repair or replace itself is not only limited to just these two areas. And so instead, when the adult brain cell in the cortex is injured, it can revert at a transcriptional level to actually an embryonic cortical neuron. And in that reverted state, it can regrow some of its axons if it's provided the right environment to grow into. So to provide that kind of encouraging environment, right, they investigated how damaged neurons can respond after spinal cord injury, certainly something that stem cell biology is you know, is working on and has been working on for, for a long time. And recently, a lot of people have been able to kind of advance the possibility of spinal cord repair by using grafted neural stem cells to actually improve spinal cord uh, regeneration and perhaps restore lost function uh, by inducing neurons to actually extend axons through and across the injury site. So you're kind of reconnecting those severed nerves. Actually, just last year, there was a team that was led by uh, another uh, group of folks at San Diego that used 3D printed implants to actually promote nerve cell growth in spinal cord injuries in rats that were restoring connections and, and loss functions. So, uh, but the, I thought the really cool part of this paper was the second half. It's showing that a gene called Huntington, which is a really famous gene, right? When you mutate Huntington, you end up getting Huntington's disease, which is a really debilitating neuro, neurodevelopmental neurological disorder where you have breakdown of nerve cells in the brain. So their team actually found that this regenerative transcriptome, you know, is the collection of the, the RNA that's used for repair is actually sustained by the Huntington gene. So this is cool because it's telling us the role of Huntington in homeostasis, right? We know that when you mess up Huntington's, you get you know, progressive neurological disorders, but this is showing that Huntington at its you know, normal state is important for, uh, for repair. And actually mice that were engineered to actually lack the Huntington gene, uh, they show that their spinal cord injuries showed significantly less neural sprouting and regeneration. So there's you know, this is telling us something new about a really famous gene in Huntington. And of course, there's a ton of translational potential here. We have thousands of people who are paralyzed after spinal cord injuries, you know, every single year from car accidents and, and from, from combat and all sorts of things. So anything that we can do to help facilitate that repair process is a big plus. Yeah, this is a big story. And I'm not saying that they should have done more because they did so much. Like you said, that just the second half was this whole revelation about Huntington. And the first half was a lot of work too. Um, but the first half, yeah, I think it was rooted in this idea that when you trans, when you do injury alone versus injury with the graft, you get a either, a, that you get the same response in the acute phase, but it's sustained, as you said, when you put mm -hmm. the graft in there too. And it's sustained in the host neurons. So, I mean, I'm not saying that I wanted them to do more, but the one question I have that I'm like, desperate to know now and i feel like it's kind of conspicuous and that has wasn't addressed although i'm sure they must have talked about it in this discussion is that there must be some paracrine factor from the graft right that's enabling this sustained transcriptome that is dependent on huntington 
So from a therapeutic standpoint, I'd be really interested to, to know if you could provide us a cell-free surrogate, you know, if you could provide mm -hmm. that signaling input that's coming from the graft and just induce without cells in the context of injury, you could allow this, you know, sustenance of this, this, uh, you know, regenerative transcriptional profile. And of course, you know, that would, that's the home run. Um, yeah. So I, I'm not surprised that they didn't get there, but uh, it's obviously, you know, it's an open question, I guess. Yeah, I mean, you can either find that kind of magic factor that's conferring disability, or you can kind of mimic it using a small molecule, like mm. kind of like what your boy, what your boy Sai is doing, right? <laughs> <laughs> He's your boy, right? Beef Sai. 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 Now you got to email me and just just you got to email me, CC Arun, and tell him how close we are. All right. I'll I'm gonna send you an email first. All right. All you have to do is reply, Sai. Just reply. Please reply, Sai. Please. <laughs> Please. Sai. I'm lonely. All right. All right. So, yeah, we're not going to the beach this summer. That's what I hear, Arun. But, uh, you know, I don't think I was going anyway. I got a lot of sub-Q fat, and uh, it ain't pretty. Okay, so let's talk about adipocytes. Not my adipocytes. Let's talk about, generally, the royal adipocyte and tissue repair. It's a stem cell show, you know. Tissue repair, it's a lot of cell types going in there, a lot of cell types, in particular in the skin. You can imagine every time you get a little cut, it takes care of itself, but it ain't easy. You're asking a lot of the body, and it takes a lot of cells. Adipocytes are a big player, um, and adipocytes, in fact, and you know, by, in a lot of fields are emerging as a critical uh, niche cell. Uh, does a lot of things. They secrete cytokines to regulate regeneration of hematopoiesis, if you can believe that. Uh, following injury. Also, there's like an antimicrobial peptides uh, that are made by adipocytes to combat bacterial infections. But the function of adipocytes in tissue repair is not really well understood. And, and here's the thing, we know they do something, right? Because adipocytes, in addition, you think of them as just the storage depot, right? But they're, they're active. They're metabolically really important. They, they store and break down triglycerides uh, to rapidly release fatty acids and that supports metabolism and underlies some signaling that's called adipocyte lipolysis okay and adipocyte lipolysis is important as i said there's lipid derived eicosanoids like prostaglandins for example that contribute to tissue repair and that follows from adipocyte lipolysis so we know that the factors that adipocytes make in this lipolysis can be important for tissue repair but whether or not this lipolysis occurs after injury and contributes to tissue repair, we don't exactly know, right? So this is another close friend of mine, not really close friend, but we did have a conversation at a conference at the time. Valerie Horsley from Yale University, not my BFF, okay? I don't need an email, but uh, we talked. She's very charming. Um, her group from Yale, they identified here a key role for mature adipocytes in tissue repair in the skin. And how they did that is they used a genetic strategy where they selectively ablated the adipocytes in the skin. And by this showed that uh, dermal adipocytes are, you need them to get macrophage, macrophage inflammation after injury and ultimately efficient repair of not just skin, but also other epithelial cells. Um, and the twist here is that before uh, macrophage infiltration 
the mature adipocytes, they undergo this lipolysis and they, re they release a lot of the fatty acids into the skin wound. And then they show very elegantly here that, that if you genetically delete this ATGL, and that results in defective uh, you know, release of the fatty acids into wound beds, you get reduced inflammatory macrophages and delayed repair. And when you do lineage tracing in that same context, you find that mature uh, adipocytes, um, they did lineage tracing and single cell seek, of course, you got to do it, uh, and showed that mature uh, adipocytes, they undergo this lipolysis, and then there's other adipocyte-derived cells um, that generate myofibroblasts uh, and secrete a lot of extracellular matrix to also foster wound injury. So adipocytes are not only contributing with the lipolysis, but then they're also ultimately giving rise to these cells as progenitors to the myofibroblasts that then further uh, foster the wound repair. So this is therapeutic on multiple ends. It's not just about the cell, but also what the cells are releasing and these fatty acids and the lipolysis. There's a lot here to unpack and it has a lot of relevance nowadays, you know, it's wound healing related to aging and particularly diabetes, which is a scourge that's only growing in scope. Uh, wound healing in the skin, it's a really big issue that leads to secondary complications, ultimately death in a lot of cases. So. Valerie Horsley, my very close friend. Nice work. Man, we're just having too much fun here. Uh, cell stem cell paper. We're going to talk about the science. Cell stem cell paper, it's a good paper. It's, uh, you know, shout out to Sheila Chari, who's the editor-in-chief of Cell Stem Cell. She's going to be joining us on the podcast not too uh, long from now, actually. So stay tuned for that. Well, we're, you know, we're talking about transdifferentiation again, reprogramming in a sense, kind of what we just talked about with uh, your earlier story. In this example, we're talking about adipocytes turning into myofibroblasts. This whole idea of cells can turn into whatever cell type they want, you know, and the fact that we're still discovering this, the fact that we're discovering that adipocytes can turn into myofibroblasts and that we can use some of this knowledge to actually turn, like, I don't know, fibroblasts into cardiomyocytes, into neurons and all sorts into, you know, to visual cells. There's so much that potential that needs to be unlocked here, right? Harping back to that point of trans differentiation and, you know, uh, direct reprogramming. I think, you know, let me back up for a bit. Why do direct reprogramming, right? I think there's a few advantages. One, you're not going through that IPS intermediate, right? If you're going directly from, like, say, a, a fibroblast to a neuron, you're not able to go through that IPS intermediate. And one thought is that the if you're able to avoid that intermediate, perhaps you avoid some tumorogenic potential that those iPSCs have. I'm deviating a little bit from this paper, but I think it's important to talk about the potential of direct reprogramming because there's a lot of work that still needs to be done for that. Um, the disadvantage of you know direct reprogramming is you're not going through that iPS intermediate, and so therefore it may be harder for you to scale up because you can scale up iPSCs like crazy, obviously, right? You can mass produce them. You can, uh, you know, you can get them to divide really easily. Whereas for direct reprogramming, you might be limited by your uh, initial pool of cells. So deviating a little bit, but I'm a big fan of direct reprogramming, and I think there's a lot of work that needs to be done to to make it a lot better. I think this is a great story. I mean, 
the switching, I, it's, it's what's curious to me is why the renewed interest in direct reprogramming, period. I feel like I haven't heard about it at all in the news. I guess that we've run out of single cell seek stories or something. Maybe it's just a, a factor of timing, but a lot of big stories this week in direct reprogramming between this and the earliest story from my best friend. So I don't know. I think, it, as you said, the, the scaling of these things remains to be seen. But I, I, my counter to that would be this, the counter argument a lot of people make in cell-based, you know, with the pluripotent is that, that yes, you can scale it in dividing cells, but it takes a lot of time. It takes a lot of reagent. And another thing, though, I would add to your, your critique there or your, your assessment is that also I wonder with direct reprogramming, if, if you're not going through that, that embryonic pluripotent intermediate, like, is that even a cell? Like, is that a cell that really exists in nature? Is that a cell that I want to put in my body? So I, I think, yeah, there's a lot of question of direct reprogramming. It's maybe why a lot of people have been shy on it. But but like I said earlier in the show, maybe it's it's a matter of just picking the right condition, maybe the best fit. Um, and we could we could make it work. I mean, hey, an IPS cell isn't something that exists in nature, right? Yeah. But you're right. You're right. There's a lot of work that needs to be done. I think part of the reason people have shifted away from direct reprogramming is because IPS differentiation has become so good, mm. right? Why bother to direct reprogram um, like an IPSC or you know a fibroblast directly into a cardiomyocyte when you can make IPS-derived cardiomyocytes really easily and by the billions, right? We've become so good at our, at our differentiation protocols for a lot of different cell types, then that's maybe why there's been a kind of a shift away from the field. But, you know, we're talking about it here. We're talking about direct reprogramming. And the last thing I'm going to talk about is something sort of related to the fat. It's the muscle. Fat and muscle go together, right? You got to exercise to get rid of your fat. And to exercise, you use your muscles, right? So we're talking about exercise, rejuvenating, quiescent, skeletal muscle stem cells in old mice through the restoration of cyclin D1. First author is Jamie Brett, who's, you know, for disclosure, she was a former grad student colleague of mine back at Stanford in the Stanford Stem Cell Program. Uh, last author is Tom Rando. So this is coming out of the Stanford University uh, Stem Cell Program. So we know that, like, this has been talked about a little bit, right? What's the advantage of exercise? There's a bunch of advantages when it comes to cardiovascular health, when it comes to you know, general well-being, right? But there's actually another advantage here that um, these folks at the Stanford University School of Medicine were able to discover. And they're able to actually find that when old animals, old mice in this case, are able to exercise, it's renewing their muscle stem cells. So they're able to uh, function better. They're able to uh, produce more muscle and repair muscle damage better. Okay, So that's kind of the, the general premise of this paper. So they're able to show that Specifically for older mice, um, regular exercise can facilitate the repair of muscle damage. Taking this a step further, um, kind of the, the story within the story here is uh, one of the co-authors is Tony Wieskere. And Tony Wieskere at Stanford is really well known for his work into parabiosis. This idea that you can connect the circulatory systems of two mice and uh, previously, they're actually able to find that there are some secreted factors in young mice that can sort of rejuvenate old mice. And they're actually seeing kind of a similar effect here, uh, showing that injecting blood from the old mouse that had actually exercised 
into an old mouse that didn't exercise was able to confer a similar benefit in muscle stem cell function. So this is suggesting that exercise is stimulating the production of some secreted factor that's able to circulate in the blood and enhance the function of older stem cells, right? So definitely a lot of more work that needs to be done. And they're able to dive a little bit deeper into the mechanism here as to actually why this is happening. And they're suggesting that Cyclin D1, which is you know one of the important regulators of the cell cycle, um, may actually be uh, playing a key role in this. So they're able to show that, um, well, you know they're able to show that cyclin D1 is activated in these rejuvenating muscle stem cells. And one thought is maybe you can exogenously stimulate this. You know, I, I'm a little hesitant to kind of make that dive to say that, oh, if we just overproduce and overactivate cyclin D1 in, in adult muscle stem cells, then, you know, we're, that's, that's a great thing because obviously cyclin D1 is important for so many other things too, right? Obviously in, in the context of cancer, but it's telling us something, a little something about exercise and why exercise is important, especially for older individuals. Um, it's important to help keep your muscles strong and perhaps to help them regenerate as well. Yeah. I, uh, looking into this, I mean, it's what you're, I think a common, um, criticism that you make not criticism, comment that you make on a lot of papers is like the practicality when you take something apart in a, in a, you know, a system, deconstructed system in vitro or in a mouse even, it seems practical. But then when you try and get into humans and drug it, cyclin D1 in this case, yeah, off target. And also here, the, the way cyclin D works is by repressing TGF-beta. So, you know, yep. TGF-beta, another pathway that's ubiquitous and important both for bad things, also important for, for good things. So we got to watch out. But yeah, I mean, I think, uh, as you said, it's really nice in terms of academic understanding of what it is that's the basis of, uh, you know, the benefit. Uh, also, maybe it could give some insight into what underlies from a signaling, a molecular standpoint, what underlies some kind of like muscle wasting disease or, or any kind mm -hmm. of muscle loss and in, in in kind of pathologic conditions. So yeah, I mean, this is a, a nice basic study that, that while you may not go out and, you know, skip the gym on your way to the beach, you, you may have some, some insight here that'll be really important clinically ultimately. Yeah. I mean, I think, um, this kind of goes back to the Huntington point, right? Ideally you would want to find a target, a target gene, target transcription factor, whatever that's exclusively regulated in the context of your disease, you know, as opposed to something like, like a cyclin D1, which is so broadly important that, you know, developing a therapeutic target for this particular indication in the context of cyclin, cyclin D1 might be kind of tricky, but yeah, more need more, more work needs to be done for sure. Yeah. Who knows? I mean, look, we're about to talk to Darcy Wagner. I know she had this story. Uh, that she posted up on the archive about, uh, you know, selectively delivering particles, but having them only be active uh, in the tumor tissue. Like, I think, you know, like you could combine a, a specificity of a, of a technique with this kind of mechanistic understanding and target the muscle cells exclusively with the cyclin D modulators, whatever. The point being, it's real. The truth is there. Uh, whether or not we can clinically exploit it, let's see. Uh, moving on, I talked about Darcy. We're about to get to that. But first, I want to give you a message from Stem Cell. Whether you are in or out of the lab, maintain research momentum and stay connected with your field by exploring Stem Cell's virtual resources, including webinars, researcher profiles, 
virtual conferences, and more at www.stemcell.com slash digital resources. Uh, moving on to the interview, we're going to get to that in just a moment. All right, you guys. Today, this episode, we have with us Dr. Darcy Wagner, who's the Associate Professor in the Department of Experimental Medical Sciences at Lund University, also the Wallenberg Molecular Medicine Fellow. Dr. Wagner's lab focuses on how the extracellular environment directs stem cell behavior for endogenous and exogenous lung tissue regeneration. They use material science, manufacturing, and lung stem cells to this end. Dr. Wagner, thanks so much for joining us today. It's great to be here. Well, it's a real pleasure to have you. I just want to start off with some facts that I pulled from the WHO uh, from a couple years ago, mind you, but I'm sure they're still pretty current, uh, regarding the global impact of diseases of the lung. This is very relevant right now amidst this COVID crisis. So here we go. 65 million people have COPD. 3 million of those die each year. 300 million people with asthma. 10 million people develop tuberculosis. Acute lower respiratory tract infections kill nearly 4 million a year. Oh, and then there's lung cancer, which kills about a million and a half people a year. And none of that counts the tremendous health burden that results from poor air quality all around the world in industrialized nations. Yet it seems like no one talks about the lungs outside of smoking and cancer when it comes to disease. Although, meanwhile, you know, coronavirus taking a massive toll. And with that, a lot more attention may be turned towards engineering, maybe cell-based therapies. Where does your work, Dr. Wagner, fit into this scary constellation of respiratory dysfunction? Well, uh, historically, my, my work in my lab is actually focused on generating lung tissue outside the body uh, for transplantation. So a number of the disorders that you just listed, um, COPD, uh, there's other diseases that are increasing, such as idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis, uh, pulmonary hypertension, that sort of all go under this umbrella of chronic lung diseases. And for all of these uh, diseases, we actually don't have any therapies. Uh, those patients only rely on lung transplant as being a sort of quote unquote, curative therapy. Um, the problem with lung transplant is there's only uh, about 5,000 lung transplants done globally each year. So if you sort of already think about the numbers you just listed in comparison with how many uh, lungs are actually transplanted each year, there's a huge disparity. Uh, so we focused on trying to uh, generate lung tissue outside the body for, for transplantation using engineering approaches. So speaking of transplantation. When it comes to the lung, my very elementary understanding of the lung is that it's a really complex organ, especially when it comes to its intricate network of bronchi and bronchioles, right? And I'd imagine that from a bioengineering perspective, it's pretty tricky to actually perfectly replicate such an elaborate structure and then combine it with the right cell types to actually create a transplantation-capable lung. But isn't that kind of the dream? So would you envision that one day we might be able to get to that level and create a fully functional bioengineered or bioprinted lung that we can use for a transplantation? Yeah, so that definitely, as you said, that's definitely the dream. Um, and that's why us and others started with this technique of decellularization, um, sort of as the first attempt really to have a scaffold. Um, because with that technique, you're able to really keep the intricate architecture um, of the lung. So you've listed already a couple. Uh, the challenges mainly with the lung are that there's multiple branching structures. You have the airways sort of superimposed with the vasculature, which is also a branching. 
um, system. So this is sort of why uh, those techniques um, were were started with decellularization. Uh, there's been more recent attempts using polymers um, as well, um, but we sort of then have to now develop uh, manufacturing processes that can actually generate uh, those very complex shapes. We're going to come back around to the decellularization in a minute, but the uh, I just wanted to ask a bit about the intrinsic uh, potential there in the lung. You know, the lung, people talk about the liver as this tremendously regenerative organ, but the lung also it can, there's endogenous regenerative processes. Um, can those endogenous cells, or tell us about how those endogenous cells work and can they be stimulated? Can we tap those to regenerate? Can you culture them and reinfuse them? to form new alveoli? I, I ask these questions and, and want you, you to elaborate them because we've discussed uh, a few papers in our roundup over the last month that have left me wondering kind of, given that all the components seem to be there, uh, it leaves me wondering why uh, cell-based therapies for lung aren't more established, why they're not more in play. Can you give us your lay of the land, so to speak? Yeah, so it's, it's a really interesting question, and uh, it's actually something that in my second postdoc, I started to really pursue, because at the end of the first postdoc, I really, you know, us and others had really established techniques. We could decellularize large organs, but one of the main mysteries then was sort of what cells are we going to put back on, um, and how are we going to do this? Um, and of course, the natural, uh, sort of naturally led me to think about how does endogenous lung regeneration happen? Um, and so the way that this sort of, the way we understand this works right now is that there's a different regional progenitor cells, um, and these sit at different locations. So if you think about the large airways um, along the basement membrane of the large airways, there's a pool of uh, basal stem cells that serve as a sort of the progenitor cells for those large airways. Um, and then if you go all the way down into the alveoli, and the type 2 cell has long been considered to be sort of the progenitor cell can give rise to one cells, which is where the gas exchange happens. Um, but sort of the question you ask is the million dollar question because there's there's a lot of diseases. Um, so things like maybe the influenza, and again, I'm not a, a viral expert, um, but when we get respiratory infections, uh, when the normal healing happens, if I put it that way, um, there actually is restoration of the barriers and you have restoration of, of function in the lung. Um, but in some cases, some diseases, that doesn't seem to happen. Um, and actually, that's not something that we completely understand um, right now. And a lot of these chronic diseases that we mentioned at the beginning, these patients that need lung transplants, one of the sort of emerging areas in the last couple of years is that those patients might actually have defective regenerative uh, programs. So the cells are trying, um, but they're actually not able to repair uh, and regenerate. Um, so it's sort of a, a, a something that we don't really fully understand right now. Um, in terms of your, your question about cell therapy, uh, there's been a lot of interest in cell therapy for the lung. Um, so this, the field really started uh, like several other fields. Uh, the first attempts were, were actually to use mesenchymal stromal cells uh, from the bone marrow, for example, uh, in COPD. Uh, and I did my first postdoc with Dan Weiss, who was the lead author on that first clinical trial. Um, that was published. Um, and what they found actually is that while it was safe, uh, there really was no uh, great clinical um, effect um, with that. And so sort of more recently, there's been more interest, as you mentioned, in using endogenous lung progenitor cells or induced pluripotent stem cells as examples um, for cell therapy. Uh, but one of the problems that sort of uh, has, has sort of appeared is, is getting those correct cells, even if we've identified and characterized them in the lab, how do we get them to the correct location? Um, in, in vivo. 
Um, and then the second part, which is uh, really where, where my lab is very interested in, is that in a lot of these diseases, uh, the stem cell niche that those cells would sit in are actually deranged. So even if we deliver a very healthy cell into the correct area, if we don't modify the niche somehow, and a part of that niche being the extracellular matrix, what we've learned in the last couple of years is if you put a healthy cell onto a disease niche, it doesn't regenerate properly. You don't mm -hmm. restore function. Um, mm -hmm. And sort of that niche really dictates the behavior of the cell. So I think we really have to overcome how do we get the right cells to the right place? And then do we have to engineer the niche or do we have to actually have something that the cells um, um, are able to overcome sort of the signaling that they're getting from this disease niche? Mm. Regeneration is certainly something that we need to learn more about across the body, you know, not only the lungs, but also other components of the cardiovascular system, like the, the heart, for example. So definitely a lot of exciting work that needs to be done. But then there are also a lot of new technologies that are emerging, not only in the lung field, but in other fields that are helping to kind of further address some of these important questions. And in terms of those technologies, you actually had a collaborative project with uh, Silica Miners Lab. This is a pretty cool technology in nanoparticles to target solid lung tumors via the vasculature. And I guess the hope is that you can use these nanoparticles to precisely and selectively deliver a drug of interest into a specific tissue, lung tissue in this example. So talk a little bit about how that collaborative effort came about and how effective might these nanoparticles be in targeting other types of notoriously difficult to treat solid tumors? Yeah, so similar to what we just talked about, uh, the challenges for cell therapy, you know, nanomedicine is sort of a parallel to this, that you could deliver, you know, factors for different diseases into the correct uh, location. Um, so the collaboration is with Silka Miners, and then there's another author that I, that's very important to mention on that, which is Thomas Fine, um, and his lab really developed the nanoparticles. Um, and sort of where, where my expertise came in is that in this effort to, to regenerate organs, one of the things is that my lab has developed a great understanding of how we keep organs and tissues alive outside of the body. Um, and so the, the first author of that paper is a postdoc in my lab, and uh, most of that work, uh, the first part of that work actually was his PhD work. And they were really struggling to deliver those particles to the correct location in lung tumors. Um, so one of the things they did very well is they used very immunologically relevant models. Uh, many lung cancer models uh, use some form of immunosuppression because they use xenografts. So in the models that they had used, uh, they had a fully competent immune system with lung cancer in those animals. And what they found is actually that uh, the nanomedicines were, able, were not able to get to the tumors. So when Dennis actually came to my lab, uh, we started to talk about sort of the, the problem that they were facing there. Um, and we discussed uh, potentially some unique surgical approaches. Um, and in order to test that, we developed this system where we're able to take the heart and lung outside of uh, the animal and actually perfuse it. Um, and in that way, we were able to sort of eliminate the systemic effects um, that you might see when you deliver it into the entire body, which is how most nanomedicines are delivered right now, is you, in, you inject them through the entire vascular system, and they somehow then have to go through this maze of the vascular system and then find their right cell. Um, so what we tried to do is just to restrict it actually to the organ that you're interested in develop, uh, delivering it to. And what we found is that we were able to get those nanoparticles into the interior of very dense tumors. Um, and we were able to see that uptake at the cellular resolution, which uh, to the best of our knowledge has never been shown with any sort of systemic um, approach. Uh, and there are several approaches that have actually been used um, previously uh, in, in the late 90s, uh, where people tried to do this isolated lung perfusion. 
but they did this with chemotherapeutics. And so what they saw, found actually was that there was um, sort of off-target toxicity. So you're delivering chemotherapeutics, uh, which don't have really any selectivity. Um, and so they're trying to kill the tumor cells, but it also killed uh, the sort of the healthy tissue next to it. Mm -hmm. And because we were able to couple that surgical approach uh, with a nanomedicine, uh, we have a spatial um, sort of and temporal release of the drug. So um, in our system, the nanoparticles that Thomas Vines lab developed, they're H responsive. So you actually have to have an acidic environment for them to release their cargo. So this really allows for sort of two points of selectivity is that we're able to deliver cells specifically uh, into the cancer cells, and then they only release the drug um, when they have sort of a certain trigger, and in this case, it being a pH-responsive element. Yeah, Darcy, you uh, mentioned that it, it was the expertise in, in being able to culture the organs outside the body, and this is expertise that you've gained in your pursuit of this decellularization that you also alluded to earlier. Um, here you're, you know, exploring the vascular tree as a means of delivery and as a bioengineer, you of course appreciate how vital the vasculature is to nutrient gas metabolite exchange and tissues. And that's really the challenge, right? With cell-based therapies or engineering tissues ex vivo is that how do we overcome that three-dimensionality? Um, and of course you're invested in efforts to create like higher ordered lung tissue, right? Using these scaffold uh, and you talked about how there's this two kind of branching systems there, the alveoli and the, the lung type specific tissue, but also the vasculature. What are you doing towards, towards uh, uh, creating a kind of vascularized lung with decellularized scaffolds? Is that, uh, what's the feasibility there? What are the obstacles? Uh, what's the progress? So uh, in terms of the uh, decellularized uh, scaffolds, um, sort of the initial, you know, hope was that we were going to be able to use these scaffolds, um, really just perfuse cells into them. The cells would somehow find their correct location um, and sort of start to regenerate. Um, and it actually has taken a lot of work uh, to actually uh, figure out how to do that. So um, some of the leading work in terms of the revascularization efforts have come from Harold Ott's lab um, at Mass General. Um, and in a paper a couple of years ago, um, they really showed that you actually have to put cells in on both sides, sort of uh, in the vasculature. Um, in order to get uh, a mostly re-endothelialized um, layer. Um, but uh, in most attempts that have been done so far in the actual scaffolds, uh, there's not com complete re-endothelialization in any of those scaffolds outside the body. And that's really a prerequisite to transplantation. Uh, we can't really transplant any sort of scaffold unless we have complete endothelialization. Um, otherwise, we're going to have leakage, um, and the organ probably won't function for very long. Um, in terms of when we think about the engineering side, uh, starting with a material that is not the decellularized scaffolds, um, we actually are more thinking, in my lab at least, of how we engineer things that might have angiogenic cues. Um, so there might be some sort of in-between that we actually could transplant something and actually encourage um, angiogenesis into a, a material. So if we have materials that are permissive of angiogenesis, um, that maybe we don't have to completely engineer a fully functioning uh, vascular system, um, but we have to tissue engineer a graft that allows for an angiogenesis uh, to happen. Um, of course, if that was going to be the approach, there would have to be sort of a, a consideration on the clinical side um, of how those patients would be cared for during that, that interim period. Um, there are, are auxiliary technologies used in the clinic right now, something called ECMO, um, which actually takes the burden of gas exchange off of the lung of that patient, and mm. it takes it outside the body. 
Uh, so you could imagine that perhaps a technology like that, which is used right now for lung transplant patients as a bridge when their lung is normal, normal, not normally functioning, um, that maybe that could be some sort of uh, in-between situation, that while the angiogenesis was happening in the body, that maybe those patients were, were on ECMO, for example. So do you think, just as a quick follow-up, and I don't want to pin you down on this, but I'm sure there's still people working toward this end, but do you think that there's maybe many have moved on from the idea of a prefab you know, network that you could then reseed with vasculature to something where it was more amenable to a, a classic neoangiogenesis that you see in vivo? And I guess the question behind the question there is, is are we realizing that you know, maybe the classic engineering mindset of the, 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 these, a kind of prefab idea is giving way to more like biology has to follow its own biological precedent. You know, these things need to grow into our grass as opposed to us like controlling and seeding them. You mean as opposed to like growing turf somewhere else and, and bringing the turf and just placing it on the lawn? Yes, that's that, the yeah, idea. That, that's sort of the analogy. Yeah, I definitely think so. And uh, I'm actually originally a mechanical engineer. That's what I did my undergrad in. Um, and so sort of, at least for me, I, I sort of went after this this really pie in the sky, I think, idea that, yeah, we can, we can make this thing. Um, and I don't think that I had enough respect or... Uh, yeah, understanding actually of, of how much I could actually use the biology. And that's something that I really learned um, in both of the postdocs that I pursued is that I think it's got to be something that that sort of mates the two of these things together. Um, I mean, similar to the vasculature, I, I don't want to give all the glory that all the challenges are with the on the vascular side. Um, I mean, the, the distal epithelium, the alveoli are, are going to really also be a challenge to engineer. Um, I mean, those structures in the human lung and average alveolus is 100 micrometers in diameter and the sort of the gas exchange uh, surface um, or the, the membrane thickness, sorry, is in the nanometer range. Mm. And uh, it also has an incredible property of being able to be stretched. Um, it has elasticity unlike any really manufactured materials that we have. Um, and so the body sort of has evolved over, you know, uh, millions of years uh, across all species in the lungs um, to really develop a very fine tuned way to do this. And we do not have any manufacturing capabilities that can do that um, right now. So I think the idea there, again, would be to have some sort of permissible environment um, that we sort of guide the cells a bit. But there, there's going to be things that we cannot engineer, at least right now, using even the best of the manufacturing technologies available. Hmm. So we can't, we can't necessarily make these things. We might just have to grow them. Yes. Yes, exactly. So you mentioned that you were a mechanical engineer back in the day, and it seems like, you know, that's part of the reason why you have such a unique perspective on these uh, different approaches towards the lungs. So you've had a pretty unique training history and that you've had the opportunity to train at different research institutions kind of worldwide. So in addition to your training in the U.S., you spent time in Munich and Sao Paulo and are now a PI in Sweden. And I think actually that's one of the coolest things about modern science, right, is that you can it's an international effort and you get to meet people from like all around the world during during your training. So talk a little bit about that, about your scientific travels and ultimately what made you decide to start your lab in Sweden at Lund University? Um, so I think it's, it's a very great question. Um, and uh, I think, to be honest, the the journey sort of just happened as it happened, at least for my own personal story, is I sort of just picked what I thought was going to be the next 
best place for me. I didn't have a vision definitely, you know, 10, 15 years ago that I was going to end up in Sweden, uh, for example. Um, and uh, at the time when I was first actually uh, looking at schools in the U.S., um, I actually wanted to be a biomedical engineer. But I think that there was less than 20 schools that offered that as an undergrad at the time. And so when I started to really visit schools, um, a lot of uh, the professors that I met, they really encouraged me um, to think about mechanical engineering because I got a very good basic um, training in chemistry and physics and electrical engineering, computer engineering, um, because a mechanical engineer really has to interface with a lot of different fields um, in order to make uh, most of the parts that we see in our house. Um, which have gone through mechanical engineers' hands. Um, and then I was able to pursue uh, the PhD in biomedical engineering. And uh, I did that actually in orthopedic uh, tissue engineering. And I was really focused on, on manufacturing the, the inorganic uh, composition or the inorganic uh, component of bone, um, which is a calcium phosphate-based uh, scaffold. And at the very end, uh, I started to put cells on this material that I had put blood, sweat, and tears into, you know, developing over three years. And um, it was really sort of what we were talking about before, um, that when I first saw um, some of these uh, interactions uh, that the cells had, they were actually making new bone, and they were making it in ways that I never could have uh, designed or manufactured. Uh, and so I got really curious um, of how actually cells and materials uh, interact with each other. And again, this, this idea that I still have that they can work together. Um, and I would say it was very serendipitous. Uh, I went, uh, my PhD advisor encouraged me to go to a stem cell symposium that my university, the University of Toledo uh, in Ohio, was hosting. And the keynote speaker was, was Dan Weiss, uh, who ended up becoming my uh, first postdoc advisor. Mm -hmm. um, and I was a very timid uh, graduate student at the time, and I was totally blown away by his talk. And, uh, you know, it was probably 200 people in the room, and I was definitely too nervous to ask him some of the burning questions that I had, you know, um, of his talk. Uh, and in his talk, he was actually just showing their first attempts to decellularize mouse lungs, which his lab had just started. So I went and found him at the, uh, at the lunch that was afterwards. Um, and uh, as he tells the story now, uh, this young graduate student attacked him with a bunch <laughs> of really difficult questions. Um, but at my in my head at the time, I thought that those were, of course, obvious questions that he would have been working on. And I was just curious. Um, so sort of one thing led to the next in that discussion. And I, I think he actually offered me a postdoc by the time we were even done with that discussion. Um, but obviously, I went on uh, to go do a postdoc with him. He convinced me to switch fields, to switch from orthopedic tissue engineering uh, into lung tissue engineering. Um, and when I look back on it, it was actually a much bigger risk than I thought. Because the orthopedic field, you really have um, a safety net. There's a huge industry uh, that's, that's, you know, if academia doesn't work out for you and you're in orthopedic tissue engineering, you're always going to get a job at one of the orthopedic companies. Uh, there's tons of, you know, development in those biomaterials. But at the time, there was really nothing in lung tissue engineering. There was no backup plan. And so I just sort of, I don't know, like a, a young, naive person went out and switched fields. Um, and I went to Vermont. Um, and uh, we made a really exciting progress. I learned a lot about uh, biology in general, and also especially lung biology and cell therapy in my time with Dan. Um, but as I already alluded to before, I really felt it was important to understand how the lung does this normally. Um, and that's what, what led me to, uh, to go look for some of the labs in the world that were, were doing that. And that's how I met uh, Melanie Krenigshoff, who I did my second postdoc with in Munich. 
Um, and I was lucky enough to get a Whitaker fellowship to, to, uh, to pursue that postdoctoral training. Um, and then I was in Munich, uh, and sort of, um, you know, uh, she gave me additional responsibilities, uh, you know, of, of mentoring PhD students, mentoring master's students. Um, and then I really started to think about, uh, trying to make that transition, you know, to becoming, um, uh, a, a PI, an independent investigator. Um, and I, I explored several different, um, options. Um, and in the end, I wanted to stay in Europe and, uh, Sweden had just launched this. Um, large um, initiative, um, the Volendam Molecular Medicine Centers, uh, which are at four different universities in Sweden. Um, and it's, it sort of was an initiative taken by the Knut and Alice uh, Volendam Foundation to sort of re-energize life science in Sweden. And so they wanted to recruit about 40, I think in the end, it's about 40 of us uh, to these four different universities um, to, yeah, to really sort of uh, give a, a new start uh, and bring in some new ideas uh, for life science in Sweden. And uh, so the package was very attractive. It was a tenure track position, which especially in Europe is a very rare thing. Um, so it just felt like the right opportunity at the right time. Um, and uh, by by sort of by that time that I was making the decision, I, I really uh, am committed to the lung as being my main organ. And uh, Lund University has actually a very uh, uh, important place in the history of lung transplant. Um, so, uh, there was a professor here, he's emeritus now, but Stieg Steen, um, who developed really two critical technologies for lung transplant that are now the gold standard. So actually the solution that organs are stored in, a Steen solution, uh, was developed at Lund University. Hmm. And then also the device that lungs are evaluated on, um, uh, before being transplanted, um, is something called ex vivo lung perfusion was also developed by his team. Um, so Lund University also has a very rich uh, history and an important uh, history in, um, in in lung transplant. Um, and so it was uh, just a very yeah attractive opportunity for me. Um, there's also a lot of other great investigators here that I felt uh, could help, um, you know, sort of move my career and my research along. So the Lund Stem Cell Center has has a lot of great experts in stem cell biology. Um, and this new Volenbay uh, Molecular Medicine uh, Center uh, that I'm a part of, um, there's each of us at the center here in Lund, it's a focus on regenerative medicine, and we all each take uh, our approaches for a different organ. So we have a lot of opportunities uh, to learn from one another of what are the advances that are, you know, in, in the bone field, for example, what are the advances in, you know, in, in, cardiovas in the cardiovascular system or, or in the brain? Um, so it's a very unique opportunity um, because of that sort of diversity. And then the second layer of that is we have a clinical counterpart. So I have, uh, in addition to my own lab, my lab works very closely with a cardiothoracic transplant surgeon, Sandra Lindstedt. Mm -hmm. And uh, for example, my, my lab members are now participating in pig lung transplant surgeries. And that's something that I never could have imagined, um, you know, doing. And so we really sort of uh, have now built this pipeline that I really could, in principle, with the people around me, take something, you know, from an idea in the lab all the way into patients. And I, I never felt that really as strongly as I do do here now in Lund that it would actually be possible if we could get those things to work. Wow, Darcy, that's quite a journey. I mean, to to listen to you, I would picture I'm talking to like an octogenarian maybe with that the diversity <laughs> of things you've done in your career. But I'm not. You're remarkably young to have reached such accolades. 
Uh, and, you know, you describe yourself as young and naive in the early days there. But I know you went to Gonzaga, the Zags mascot was yes. a bulldog. I'm thinking maybe it was just your tenacity. You know, you put your head down in a problem and, and wouldn't take no for an answer. Is that your secret? What is your secret to such outsized success at this early point in your career? What do you think you would attribute that to? It's a. Uh, it's really interesting that you would just uh, bring up Gonzaga, um, but I. I feel it was. It was indeed a very formative time, um, uh, of my life uh, being at Gonzaga. Um, I. I was an athlete uh, growing up, and I think you know when I. When I first started uh, at Gonzaga, I. I came on a. A very. Uh, very generous academic scholarship, and um, I. I sort of had to learn how to. Uh, translate sort of the hard work I had learned as an athlete into the um, into the classroom. Um, I had always gotten good grades in high school. I was a, a very good student in high school, um, but uh, the professors at Gonzaga really took it to another level. And I I remember working very hard um, at, during that time. And I think that's something um, that I really learned there is that hard work pays off um, long term. And uh, yeah, as you know, Gonzaga has sort of always been the underdog. And that's something that also at the university, sort of all of us uh, embrace, you know, the university maybe doesn't have the biggest name academically, um, but but all of my friends from there, we are all very successful, I would say, and wherever we found ourselves. So I sort of uh, feel very fortunate for the time that I was there. Um, I learned to work hard and I learned that that hard work uh, always pays off somehow. Um, so there's a lot of failure that you have in academia, um, but I'm very confident in the fact that if we make developments, that success comes at some point. Uh, you just maybe have to go through the tough points at some part at some point. So Darcy, this has been incredible just to see your journey as a, a young scientist um, over these you know last few years, going around the world to do incredible training incredible biology and, and, and focusing on the lung. It's, I think it's really cool for our, our young listeners, especially to, to get a feel for, um, you know, uh, sort of a non-traditional path to success. So I think that's, that's really great. Um, before we let you go, we're going to ask you a couple of science peripheral ish questions. So starting off, what non-science book are you reading or that you've read that is awesome? Um, so one of the things that, um, I really, uh, because of my own personal experience, I really have tried to have a lab that is very internationally diverse, um, and personality diverse. And so with that comes some challenges, um, of course, of getting all those people to work together. Um, mm -hmm. so one of the books that I've really enjoyed in the last couple of years, is something called the culture map. Um, and this really talks about, um, how different cultures, um, have different sort of, uh, dimensions to them. So the pace at what we talk at, for example, or how we communicate, um, what level of communication uh, works, um, sort of how direct uh, people are or how indirect they are. Um, and so I just found it to be uh, a very fascinating um, uh, book uh, that not just uh, about the sociology of different cultures, but um, also applied to, um, yeah, how we get diverse teams to work uh, with, with one another. So I, I highly recommend, um, that book if, if you have not read it. <laughs> no, yeah. definitely. I'll, I'll want to check that out just cause like in a field like this, that's so inherently diverse in not only its topic, but it's people. I think, you know, to have that knowledge is really important. I mean, stem cell biology is 
like by definition such a, an international effort. So um, I will definitely check that out. And then finally, wrapping things up, who are your scientific heroes? So that's a that's another really great question, and I I have to think really hard about that. But I think it's best to go you know, more towards the beginning of, of my career when I think I first started to recognize that um, I really loved science. And um, I went to a uh, an all-girls Catholic high school in Toledo, Ohio, uh, in the U.S. And um, I had um, two sisters um, that actually were my first uh, science teachers um, in, in high school. Um, and the reason that I consider both of them, probably uh, Sister Benita and Sister Irene Gerdeman, as my um, science heroes, is uh, I find myself a lot of days reflecting on some of the really early things that they taught me. Um, and I think if I have to think about what they taught me, uh, so Sister Irene, um, I had her for both chemistry and physics. And I'm pretty sure that everything I know about the scientific method, I learned from her. Um, we had to do these really extensive uh, lab reports um, in chemistry. So this is when I was a sophomore and then when I took physics again with her. Um, and we had to um, write these sections at the very end of those lab reports on all the things that could have been that could have gone wrong. So why our data maybe didn't match up in terms of what what we expected to have happen. And it's something that actually I find myself having to train a lot of my master's and PhD students in. And, and I didn't realize how much she had actually ingrained that in me, that I really just started to think about uh, results and that you don't always just trust the result that's in front of you. You have to think about it. How did I get here? Is it what I expected? So I think she's, you know, with with as I go on in my career, she's become really a scientific hero because uh, she sort of laid a, a much better foundation than I ever could have imagined. Um, and Sister Benita, I have to give her a lot of credit because I um, somehow made it my entire um, academic career of being in a faculty of medicine with never taking a biology course in college. Um, and so all the biology that I learned and that I use now came from her. Wow. Um, so I think that those two, they they deserve an incredible nod because they laid a foundation that I um, that I, that sort of has carried uh, a mechanical engineer all the way through to be an associate professor uh, at a faculty of medicine. So it's pretty mm. impressive, I think, when I think about what the two of them did. That's very sweet and inspirational, Dr. Wagner. You know, uh, I'm going to come back to something you said earlier. Uh, you know, when you talk about these people that plant the seed of science in, in uh, an individual, and I think we can all think about those people that planted that seed. And you talked about it, you know, you can't make things happen sometimes. Sometimes they have to grow. And uh, so credit to all the heroes out there that planted those seeds of science and us all, because, you know, in times like this, we're looking to you, Darcy. I mean, you may have the solution to some of the world's biggest problems, no pressure. But uh, thanks for joining us so much. This has been a great chat. Thanks, both of you. Uh, it was a lot of fun. All right, guys, that brings us to the end of our show. A little bit of a note of inspiration from Dr. Wagner there, who her science interest began with the sisters, which is a bit unexpected. You know, you never thought to find an interest in science and religion, but it comes from everywhere, you guys. Don't forget to subscribe to our newsletter at www.stemcellpodcast.com to get the show notes, including an episode summary and links to all of the interview and roundup papers. You can also reach out to us on Twitter at Stem Cell Podcast or by email at info at stemcellpodcast.com. There you can give us feedback or 
suggest guests for all you Zags out there. You ain't the underdog anymore. <laughs>